In this world of rapid change, there is an increasing need for news and information interpreted through a Christian worldview. Today on Issues in Perspective. For the Protestant, Scripture is the final authority. For the Roman Catholic Church, it's both Scripture and tradition. However, for the Eastern Orthodox, theological authority is internal, coming from the Spirit who speaks to believers through tradition. For Orthodoxy, the papacy is not the guardian of truth, The whole people of God is the protector of apostolic tradition. Tradition is the life of the Spirit in the church. Her alone is the ultimate criterion of truth. For that reason, the Bible is the unique expression of that tradition and is elevated, incensed, kissed, and given a place of honor in various processions. However, in Eastern Orthodoxy, tradition also includes the historic church councils, the early fathers, and their writings. Orthodoxy Believers never approach Scripture without the grid provided by councils and the fathers. They are complementary witnesses of the Holy Spirit. There are other differences between Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. Where the Catholic Church affirms purgatory, Orthodoxy repudiates that belief. Where the Catholic Church demands celibacy of its entire clergy, Orthodoxy permits clergy below the office of bishop to marry. Where the Catholic Church affirms the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, as head of the Church, Orthodoxy repudiates that teaching. Orthodoxy mandates its clergy wear beards, while that is not an issue in Catholicism. Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy strongly agree on the foundational doctrine of the Trinitarian Godhead. But when it comes to almost all other manifestations of faith and practice, they differ often considerably. For this reason, and one of the main points of this whole program, Issues in Perspective, is for all of us as evangelical Protestants to understand the distinctive differences between the two other great Christian traditions, and also understand how we can be a witness of the truth of the absolute authority of the Bible to these other traditions within historic Christianity. It is important for us to be able to represent the truths of Jesus Christ through the understanding of these traditions. May God give us the enablement to do so. This is Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective provides a weekly overview of news that pertains to your Christian life and is designed to help you discern and interpret issues that affect you in light of God's truth. Here is Dr. Jem Ekman to help you think biblically about these issues. Welcome and thank you for being with me today on our program, Issues in Perspective. In our program for this week, I want to address an historical issue. In the July 2011 edition of Christianity Today, there's an interview with Bishop Callistus Ware, formerly known as Timothy Ware, who as an evangelical had converted to Orthodox Christianity. He had written a rather definitive book about Orthodox Christianity entitled The Orthodox Church, which I would highly recommend if you're interested in understanding Orthodoxy. Since his conversion to Orthodoxy, Ware has become an Orthodox monk, took the name Callistos, became a lecturer at Oxford University, and was made Metropolitan Bishop of Diocaleia for Greek Orthodoxy in Great Britain. Ware is representative of a number of evangelicals who have converted to Eastern Orthodoxy. 
Among more prominent Christians who have also converted is, of course, Frankie Schaefer, the son of Francis and Edith Schaefer. Because these well-known conversions have occurred, I'm devoting this entire edition of Issues in Perspective to an analysis of Eastern Orthodoxy and its differences with Roman Catholicism. First of all, historically, let's address the issue of origins. The origins of Roman Catholicism and of Eastern Orthodoxy together. The Christian Church began at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit filled the nearly 120 believers gathered in Jerusalem. From there, it spread to Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Organizationally, the church developed from a plurality of church leadership in the first century, you see that in the book of Philippians, for example, to a bishop having authority over seven, several churches in the second century, to a hierarchical structure in the third and fourth centuries. By the fifth century, the church regarded the bishop of Rome as the first among equals and the city of Rome as its geographical center. Through church councils, and Nicaea and Chalcedon, 325-451 come to mind, the church reached agreement that the Bible taught God as Trinity, that Jesus is God, that his death is a substitutionary one, and that he's coming again. Protestant church historians generally maintain that institutionalized Roman Catholicism began with Gregory's appointment as Bishop of Rome in A.D. 590. Though he refused the title of Pope administratively, he organized the papal system of government that characterized the entire medieval period and even today the way the church is structured. Thus, all the major bishoprics of the West looked to him in Rome for guidance and leadership. He likewise standardized the liturgy and theology of the burgeoning Roman church. Doctrines like the veneration of Mary, purgatory, an early form of transubstantiation, and praying to departed saints found their infant pronouncements in Gregory's writings. Gregory also promoted missionary activity among the Germanic tribes who had conquered the Western Roman Empire. Gregory laid the foundation for the great edifice known as Roman Catholicism. Two other factors contributed to the growing power and prestige of the Roman bishop. First, an early king of the Franks, one of the Germanic tribes, Pepin, in the 700s, granted the pope extensive land in central Italy. It was called the Nation of Pepin, making the Catholic Church a temporal and political power in Europe. Second, the donation of Constantine allegedly gave power and authority to the Roman bishop when Constantine relocated his capital to the east. This was later discovered to be a forgery, but both the donation of Pepin and the donation of Constantine solidified the power of the papacy. Missionary activity throughout Europe brought the areas under Germanic tribal domination into the Roman Catholic fold. St. Patrick is a good example of that. Boniface, the apostle of the Germans, is another example. The church became a civilizing force as the Germanic tribes converted to faith and settled down. During the medieval period of church history, which is roughly 600 to 1500, a group of theologians called the Scholastics theologically systematized the body of critical Roman Catholic doctrine. And the apex of that is, of course, Thomas Aquinas. His life of scholarship forever shaped the direction of institutionalized Catholicism. His great work, Summa Theologica, gave critical support to the distinctive doctrines of the Christian faith. 
He defended the veneration of Mary, the seven holy sacraments through which God conveys grace, purgatory, the role of human merit and salvation, and of course, the whole idea of transubstantiation. By this time, Roman Catholicism not only had a distinct hierarchical structure with clear geographical support, it also now had a defining theology. Well, this leads me to a second cluster of comments. How then did Western Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy split? The division of the church between East and West, Eastern Orthodoxy, Western Roman Catholicism, is deeply rooted in church history. First of all, early on, leaders noted the difference and discrepancies that language brought. The Eastern Church spoke and wrote in Greek, while the West began to speak and write in Latin. This was perhaps the first sign that there was division within the Church. Several additional developments enhanced the linguistic and geographical separation. First, when Pepin made his donation of land in central Italy to the papacy in 756, which I mentioned earlier, he caused the Pope to fix his attention more to the West and basically ignore the East. The Pope was now the largest landholder in Italy with an annual income of over a million dollars and a recognized secular as well as religious leader. Pepin's son, the great Charlemagne, came to Rome and on Christmas Day 800 was formally crowned Holy Roman Emperor by Pope Leo III. This act symbolized the division of East and West. Furthermore, a doctrinal development intensified the growing East-West division. The issue centered on the question of who sent the Holy Spirit, the Father or the Father and Son. The great 5th century theologian Augustine argued strongly that the Spirit was sent, the language usually used is proceeded from, both Father and Son. In 589, a Western council that met in Toledo, Spain, there, Western theologians added to the Nicene Creed of 381 the language that the Spirit proceeded from the Father and the Son. In Latin, it's philoque, and from the Son. This controversy is hence called the philoque controversy. Eastern theologians strongly protested this addition. Another theological controversy separating East and West was the dating of Easter. During the first centuries of the church, Eastern Christians celebrated Easter on Passover. The West always celebrated Easter on a Sunday. In 325, at the Council of Nicaea, the Eastern practice was condemned, thereby marking another divergence. By the fourth century, Easter was being celebrated on different Sundays all over Christendom. During the sixth century, a monk named Diogenes Exegius, working out a formula for dating industry, Easter also created the B.C. 80 system for numbering years, which we follow in the West, as you know. The West accepted his system. The East did not. For Western Christians, Easter is celebrated on the first Sunday after the first full moon occurring on or after March 21st, which is vernal equinox. In the East, Easter is always celebrated on the first Sunday following the full moon after vernal equinox, but the Sunday following Passover as well. For that reason, the East normally celebrates Easter about a week later than the West. But the final break between East and West came in 1054 in what is known as the Great Schism. 
On June 16th of that year, 1054, Pope Leo IX excommunicated Orthodox Patriarch Michael Sorelius for trying to humiliate and crush the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. The Patriarch of Constantinople then excommunicated Pope Leo. This mutual excommunication marks the formal break between Eastern and Western Christianity, and that break has never been healed. The hostility and split between East and West were intensified when, during the 1204 Crusade, the Crusaders sacked and pillaged Constantinople on Good Friday. That's the center of the Eastern Church for the most part. So horrific and inexcusable was this event that the break between Eastern and Western Christianity was final and complete. Islam also had a devastating effect on the Eastern Church. Major centers of the Eastern Church, Jerusalem, Antioch, Alexandria, fell into Muslim hands, and after the 8th century theological development in these areas ceased. Therefore, the leadership of the Eastern Church gravitated to Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul, Patriarch. And when that city fell to the Muslim Ottoman Turks in 1453, leadership passed to the Russian Orthodox Patriarch, who declared Moscow is the third Rome after historic Rome and, of course, Constantinople. Today, in effect, in the 21st century, there are 13 self-governing independent churches in Eastern Orthodoxy, each with its own head, uh, patriarch, archbishop, or metropolitan, those various titles. So we've looked at the historic development of the church, the split between East and West. Now, finally, what about the theological differences? Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, theologically speaking. Theologically, Roman Catholicism has consistently held to the historic and biblical view of God as Trinity and has defended the deity of Jesus and his virgin birth. But there are several areas where there have been differences. First, in Scripture. The official position of the Roman Catholic Church is that sacred tradition and sacred Scripture are equal sources of authority for the Christian. The Church is entrusted with the transmission and interpretation of these two traditions, and it declares what the revelation from God says and means. Tradition for the Roman Catholic refers to the external dogmatic authority that resides in the teaching, and these are the words that are normally used, the magisterium of the Church, as expressed in the primacy and infallibility of the papacy. Both scripture and tradition must be honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. And that, incidentally, the words of Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, who is now Pope Benedict XIII. Second, a comment about Mary in terms of theology. The Church teaches that Mary is the mother of God, was immaculately conceived, that is, born without original sin, and was bodily taken to heaven, what's called the Assumption of Mary thereby not dying. Therefore, the Church teaches that the Holy Mother of God, the New Eve, Mother of the Church, continues in heaven to exercise her maternal role on behalf of the members of Christ. Thirdly, are the sacraments. The Church in Rome teaches that there are seven grace-conveying sacraments, baptism, confirmation, the Eucharist, or communion, penance, extreme unction, or last rites, and then holy orders in marriage. Although the Church baptizes adults when they convert to Catholicism, it basically practices infant baptism, whereby the child is cleansed of original sin. The Church also teaches baptismal regeneration, that is, that it's necessary for salvation. 
For the Church, the Eucharist, or communion, centers on transubstantiation, whereby when the priest prays the prayer of consecration, the bread and wine literally become the body and blood of Christ. Each time the Mass is said, Jesus is sacrificially present in the elements. Finally, in terms of Roman Catholicism, a word about salvation. For the Roman Catholic Church, salvation is more of a process than an event, a line, not a point. That process begins with infant baptism and is nourished along through life by the sacraments. The Church teaches that after baptism, the believer will continue to sin. It teaches, however, that there are two categories of sin. Mortal sin, which can cause a person to lose sanctifying grace, and thereby separates them from God. And forgiveness for mortal sin can come only through confession to a priest or an act of repentance. Secondly, are venial sins, which are less serious and do not take away grace. They're removed by simple acts of repentance. The Church teaches that faith is merely the beginning of salvation, for the believer must work throughout life to complete the process begun by faith. The faithful Catholic must follow the sacraments regularly. If the sacraments are not followed regularly or if mortal or venial sins are committed and there's no confession, when the believer dies, he or she will spend time in purgatory. There they can receive temporal punishment for sin that then purifies them for heaven. Now, in the final part of the program, let me think with you about the theology of Eastern Orthodoxy and how it differs from the theology of Roman Catholicism. A friend of mine who's written somewhat extensively on Eastern Orthodoxy describes a typical Orthodox worship service in this way, quote, The near absence of chairs or pews, dim lighting, head coverings for most women, icons and frescoes covering almost every inch of space in the walls and ceiling, a massive and ornate iconostasi separating the priests and the worshipers, the smoky smell of incense and hundreds of candles burning in memory of the dead, the priest resplendent in his ornate vestments and enormous beard, worshipers repeatedly prostrating themselves, kissing the icons, making the sign of the cross. This is a typical Orthodox worship service. But what is the theology of Eastern Orthodoxy that produces worship like this, so foreign to typical Western Protestants, evangelicals, and even Roman Catholics? First, a comment about the Church. Eastern Orthodoxy teaches that it is the one true Church on earth, tracing its origins back to the Apostolic Church in an unbroken succession. The implication of this position is that both Catholics and Protestants have departed from the true Church and the true faith. What about the sacraments? As with the Roman Catholic Church, Eastern Orthodoxy affirms the seven sacraments through which God transmits both saving and sanctifying grace. Baptism, however, is the primary sacrament, for everything in the Church flows out of the waters of baptism. They write their mission of sin and life eternal. Orthodoxy also practices infant baptism, immersing the child three times, by which the infant is born again and wholly cleansed from sin. Immediately following baptism is the rite of chrismation, where the priest anoints the child with a special ointment making the sign of the cross in various parts of the body, symbolizing the gift and seal of the Holy Spirit. Like Catholicism, Orthodoxy teaches the sacrificial presence of Jesus in the communion elements, 
but orthodoxy rejects transubstantiation, simply affirming the mystery of the sacrament. Orthodoxy is also administers the sacraments to infants. It's important to say a word about icons in Eastern Orthodoxy. Probably the most unusual aspect of Eastern Orthodoxy for the evangelical Protestant is the centrality of icons during worship. At baptism, the believer often receives an icon of a saint whose name he or she takes. At marriage, the father of the couples blesses them with icons, and at death, the icon proceeds with the burial procession. Icons are flat images of wood, images of Jesus, of Mary, or of a saint. They're usually, again, the form wood pictures painted in oils and often ornately decorated with brilliant colors. Icons are central to orthodoxy because they are of equal benefit and mutually revelatory with the written word. Icons are not idols or vile images. They are types, figures, shadows of the truths of Christianity. What the Bible proclaims in words, the icon proclaims in color. For the Eastern Orthodox Christian, icons demonstrate the humanity of Jesus, which is the key to his incarnation. The icons of Jesus demonstrate that he is God and man together in one person, local lights, and space-time history. Icons are to teach the profound truth of Christianity, according to Eastern Orthodoxy. What about Scripture? For the Protestant, Scripture is the final authority. For the Roman Catholic Church, it's both Scripture and tradition. However, for the Eastern Orthodox, theological authority is internal, coming from the Spirit who speaks to believers through tradition. For Orthodoxy, the papacy is not the guardian of truth, the whole people of God is the protector of apostolic tradition. Tradition is the life of the Spirit in the Church, or alone is the ultimate criterion of truth. For that reason, the Bible is the unique expression of that tradition and is elevated, incensed, kissed, and given a place of honor in various processions. However, in Eastern Orthodoxy, tradition also includes the historic Church councils, the early fathers, and their writings. Orthodoxy Believers never approach Scripture without the grid provided by councils and the fathers. They are complementary witnesses of the Holy Spirit. There are other differences between Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. Where the Catholic Church affirms purgatory, Orthodoxy repudiates that belief. Where the Catholic Church demands celibacy of its entire clergy, Orthodoxy permits clergy below the office of bishop to marry. Where the Catholic Church affirms the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, as head of the Church, Orthodoxy repudiates that teaching. Orthodoxy mandates its clergy wear beards, while that is not an issue in Catholicism. Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy strongly agree on the foundational doctrine of the Trinitarian Godhead. But when it comes to almost all other manifestations of faith and practice, they differ often considerably. For this reason, and one of the main points of this whole program, Issues in Perspective, is for all of us as evangelical Protestants to understand the distinctive differences between the two other great Christian traditions, and also understand how we can be a witness of the truth of the absolute authority of the Bible to these other traditions within historic Christianity. It is important for us to be able to represent the truths of Jesus Christ 
to the understanding of these traditions. May God give us the enablement to do so. You've been listening to Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective is a radio production of Grace University in Omaha, Nebraska. If you have any questions or comments, or you would like a written summary of today's program, write to Issues in Perspective, 1311 South 9th Street, Omaha, Nebraska, 68108. You can also view a transcript and listen online at issuesinperspective.com. Join us next week for Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman. Issues in Perspective is a listener-supported program and ministry of Grace University. You can listen to this program as well as past programs on the web. Just log on to issuesinperspective.com and click on the Listen To button. You can also find the link to Dr. Ekman's website by logging on to this radio station's website and click on the Issues in Perspective banner ad. Issues in Perspective depends on listeners like you in order to broadcast on this station and other Christian radio stations across the country. Please send your tax-deductible donation to Issues in Perspective, P.O. Box 3251, Omaha, Nebraska, 68103. Your generous donation will help spread the Word of God and how it relates to culturally engaged Christians in today's world.